Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your blessing to us. Thank you for your word to us, the fellowship of your table, the fellowship of your people. Bless this catechism time now, we pray, Lord. Bless the children in their classes. Bless us and our understanding of the faith, once for all delivered. And we pray, Father, that we would know it well and be able to live by it and to explain these things to other people so that more disciples will be made. For we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, Phil, can you close that door back there? And uh, we're going to get started. Okay. So we are on Lord's Day 14. Is that right? Lord's Day 14. No, 15. Seems like our class shrunk today. Okay. All right. Yeah, if we could just close... Bob, can you close that door back there? Okay, thank you, sir. Okay, so Lord's Day 15, everybody there? So we have... uh, we have three questions, and again, it's in that section on the Creed, on the Apostles' Creed in the Grace section. So, question 37 What do you understand by the word suffered during his whole. All right, let's try that again. Okay, I know everybody's been talky talky today. Let's try that again. Okay, uh, what do you understand by the word suffered during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end? Christ sustained in body and soul. The anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation, and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by a civil judge, and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall upon us. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, this death convinces me that he shouldered the curse which lay upon me, since death by crucifixion was accursed by God. Okay, so we can see in that section on the creed where uh, what, what it's confessing, and he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, and then uh, next week it'll be uh, dead, died, buried, and so on. Uh, so we want to look at these three questions right here. Uh, okay. So question 37. What, what do you understand by the word suffer? Um, one of the things we want to be clear about when we talk about Christ's suffering, uh, that uh, we've, we've made this distinction in theology, is something that we call Christ's uh, passive obedience and his active obedience. In theology, you make a lot of distinctions, right? Um, And it's necessary at times um, to look at what God's Word says and formulate 
uh, clear teaching um, about what God's revelation communicates to us. And then part of that formulation, part of that work, involves making distinctions. Um, This is one that's arose over the centuries, is Christ's passive and his active obedience. What do we mean by this, his passive and his active obedience? Um, Passive comes, you know, it comes from that word passio in Latin, or um, passion, the passion of Christ. What do we mean by the passion of Christ? Nobody knows? What do we, you've, you've heard of the movie, The Passion of Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus was passionate? It means suffering. When we talk about Christ's passion, we're talking about his suffering. Um, so when we talk about his passive obedience, what do you think that might mean? If passion means suffering... He didn't let the cup pass. Right? He suffered. He was obedient. And so we think of, uh, for example, uh, in he, uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2, how Paul says, um, when he's telling us to have the mind of Christ, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so, yeah, he drank the cup, as John's saying, of God's judgment and wrath. And so his obedience has two parts to it. His, all his suffering, okay, all his suffering... He, he obediently gave himself to suffer for the sins of others. But it also required his active obedience, okay? And the difference between these two is simply this. This has to do with the removal of our sins. I like to think of, you know, a, a negative mark, you know, a minus. Taking away our sins, This has to do with a plus, giving us merit, righteousness. Both are necessary. If Jesus only suffered, that deals with our sins, but then we haven't accomplished the righteousness that God requires of us. So uh, Christ's life of obedience, his obeying every command of God, obeying the will of God, is what uh, produces for us the righteousness that we need in order to be acceptable in God's sight. Now, sometimes people will think of, oh, okay, so his act of obedience was his life, and his passive obedience was his death. Um, that, we don't want to think like that. That's a wrong way of thinking about it. And the Heidelberg here makes it clear Uh, when when it says uh, that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ suffered. He suffered in certain ways the anger of God against human sin. Um, He's born into a world that is cursed. So God's wrath and anger 
is expressed against the world right now in that we die. Every time we go to a funeral, we're reminded that we live in a cursed world, that God's, there is God's anger expressed against the sins of the whole human race. Christ is born into this world. He is subject, even though he does not have sin, as we explain from um, his conception by the Holy Spirit, he is divine, born of the Virgin Mary. He is nonetheless uh, subject to uh, finitude. He can only be in one place at one time. He is subject to limitations, being human. But even above that, he's subject to all the curses of a fallen world. So he knows what it's like to get tired, uh, to be afraid. To, here's times when he is, he, he, he is, uh, his soul is in anguish. Um, again, not sinning in any way, but nonetheless subject to human emotions. He weeps at Lazarus' to, uh, uh, tomb when he's confronted with death. And all of this is part of his passive obedience. His passive obedience is more than just the cross. Then we think also when he went to, into the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, this is what, what you're quoting, John, um, when Jesus prayed, and he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but um, not my will, your will be done. And he was in anguish again. There's a Greek word that's used for uh, Christ's anguish that's used several times by the gospel writers, Luke and John. I think Matthew uses it too. That it... Uh, that it expresses a heart, a broken heart, a heart that is full of sorrow and full of anxiety. And so as he's in the garden, he's not, you know, just whistling psalms of praise and, hey, it's all okay because I'm going to be raised from again from the dead. He is subject to the living under a cursed world. And this is part of his passive obedience. That's why the Heidelberg says, but especially at the end of his life. Gethsemane, and then, of course, the most, what we call his passion, formally speaking, that last week that he has, and especially as he goes to the cross, um, subjecting himself to uh, uh, a, a criminal trial that was false and torture, and then, above all, being nailed to a cross and being the object of God's wrath as our sins were laid upon him. All of that is his passive obedience. However, his active obedience is everything he obeyed. So every time you know, we obey God, we are actively seeking to love our neighbor or actively seeking to do something that God commands. Jesus did those things perfectly. And so the two of them go hand in hand through his whole life. Even the cross is active obedience as well as passive obedience because he obeyed, as Paul says, all the way to the point of the cross. He was obeying the Father even as he suffered on the cross. So very important that we understand that. Um, I've, I've heard it misquoted many times that, oh, his active obedience is his life and his passive obedience is his death, but that's not true. Um, his passive obedience it goes on throughout his life and his active obedience even took place upon the cross as he gave himself over, but we need them both for different reasons. This removes our sins, his passive obedience, and his active obedience gives us the merit we need to stand before God. Uh, any questions on that? Yeah, Jason.
Oh, great question. Did everybody hear that question? See, this is the kind of stuff that you start thinking. You're like, well, wow, what about this? Or what about that? So um, when Christ comes in human flesh, Jason asked, um, is that just his incarnation? Is it passive obedience or active obedience? And then also, correct me if I'm wrong, now that he's always in human flesh, is he still obeying the Father actively? Is that right? Right. Right. Well, let's take the second part first. So Christ is no longer suffering anything. I mean, the only thing that he is lacking right now is um, his bride. He's betrothed to her, and uh, the bride is coming. He's, He's coming for his bride. But he's not suffering, and he never will suffer, and we will never suffer in the resurrection. We won't be under a cursed world. So as Revelation 21 says, he will wipe away every tear and there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more death. So the, the passion is gone. And that shows how Christ's passion was sufficient to end all suffering for God's people. Uh, does he go on obeying? Well, yes, of course. And we all will go on obeying God but he's not doing it in any way now to merit anything because he's already earned the merit. Uh, when he said it is finished, um, he meant it is finished. And, the, and the, as the apostles write in their epistles, um, it, when they explain the efficacy of the death of Christ and the resurrection, all the merit needed to make us right with God and, and also to buy our sanctification and our glorification, it was all in Christ's act of obedience. He's paid for all of that. And no sin can stand against us because of this. So he's not earning anything. His incarnation in itself, um, that's a great question. And I deal with that a little bit in the book Sacred Bond with uh, the, the uh, covenant of redemption Even from eternity past, the Son is obedient to the Father by agreeing to this covenant whereby He will come into the world in the fullness of time, taking on a human nature, real body, real soul, and do the work for us that is necessary so that we can be reconciled to God. So He's obedient even from eternity past. His incarnation in itself, is, an, is a, uh, an act of obedience. And the fact that he is uh, helpless as a baby and subject to uh, a fallen world, subject to being cold, subject to being hungry. What do babies do when they're cold and they're hungry? Right, so what does that do with our hymn? No crying he makes. I don't like that hymn. And it's not because I'm just nitpicky curmudgeon. It's actually, it's bad theology. Oh, you're being nitpicky. No, I'm not being nitpicky. It's an assault on the humanity of Jesus Christ. And these things have been resolved in ecumenical counsel. And so if you want to sing that heretical line, I don't recommend it. But, you know, that is between you the consistory. 
<laughs> the Lord's already said he doesn't like it. Uh, but uh, no, you get the idea that um, it, even that is passive obedience in that sense. He's subject. So there was another hand. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely, but not in any sense that he, like I said, he, act, he actively obeys for all eternity. I'm going to repeat myself. And we will actively obey for all eternity, but not in any way that it merits anything. He's already merited it. He's already crossed the finish line. There's nothing else that he has to earn. But he, uh, but he continues to obey, yeah. And he continues to intercede for us. He will always be our mediator. He will always be obedient. But everything that was necessary to reconcile us to God has been accomplished. Because we need it still. We need it. We need it if we don't have an intercessor and if we don't have a mediator, uh, we're doomed. He's accomplished the work, but the, the, a necessary component of that work that he has already accomplished involves his eternal mediation. So it's not, it's not as if, in other words, it's not as if there's going to come a point in time where he says, oh, you know what, I've been mediator now for 50,000 years. I need a break. And, uh, you know, you're all on your own. Um, no, we know that that's not the case because the probation has already been passed. The probation has already been passed. And he's already shown himself to be the kind of God that is good for his word. And so we know that he will continue to be our mediator. But we, he, he will forever and always uh, be the one who has made that mediation and reconciliation between us and God. And we'll see him face to face. We'll dwell with him here on earth. That's the beauty. I'm looking forward to that. Dwelling here on earth and Christ will be here. You know, people get all excited about, you know, when this celebrity or that celebrity comes to town, you know, um, you know or the Pope comes to town or whatever. Jesus is going to come from town to town. We're going to see him, and he knows each one of us. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to that. And, and that's the promise that we have. He's not going to be on a cloud somewhere in the distance. He's going to dwell here on earth with us, and he's forever in a body. There's another hand. Yes, Yolanda. Pastor Brown, so he suffered for everything that I did. Yes. I'm going to do and will do. Yes. However, tomorrow I'm going to lie again. Tomorrow I'm going to still be a sinner until I die. God is, uh, Jesus Christ is with God saying, remember, she's already had the marriage. You know, just kind of don't look at her anymore. She's safe. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Right. No, I think, I think you're right, Yolanda, in the sense that, um, yeah, you don't have to worry that anything you do in the future, any failure you make in the future, won't be covered by his atoning blood, which is his passive obedience. Right. 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 You're safe. That's good. A good way of putting it. Right. Right. Yeah, and if we think of exactly, that was what I was going to say. Yes. Yes. 
Right, sure. That's a good point. Exactly. That's another good point. You know, when he's, on, when he's suffering on the cross, when he's suffering and even in his life, um, going to Jerusalem, Luke chapter 9, I think it's verse 51 or so, he says, it says that, and he set his face steadfastly uh, to Jerusalem. I think the old English has it like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And then from Luke 9 all the way to, what is it, like in the 20s or so, um, it's his journey to Jerusalem. He is intent on going to the cross, knowing that he's going to die for the sins not only of the people in the past, like Abraham, that placed their faith in him, you know, by shadow, but also all those, the untold millions and billions that would put their faith in him, uh, the elect, in the future. And that means all their sin. And getting back to your point, Yolanda, that's also what produces gratitude in us. Like you said, knowing that I'm safe, knowing that God is not going to count my shortcomings, my failures, my, you know, my sin. I sin. Um, you know, if I've let you down as a pastor, well, here's, here's the headline. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And um, we all let each other down, don't we? And, uh, and it may be sometimes that someone's let me down, they haven't done anything wrong. It's been my expectation I put on them that's sinful. And uh, we need to have this grace with one another. And pastors need that grace too. Uh, because we're sinners. And uh, we, we, you know, we, we're covered by that same blood that you are. Um, that doesn't excuse failure, but um, it does produce in me, and it produces in you, I know, a joy and, and a, a relief. And, yeah, a, a feeling of I'm safe, like you, like you put it, Yolanda. And, and to know that now I want to live for him because he's paid for it. Yeah, I, I belong to him. What a great, glorious thing, right? Yeah. I'm a child of God. I have been saved by the blood of Christ. Right. So how do I behave? With all my faults, as a child right. of God. That's correct. Period. Right. And this is, to me, my church is my safe place because when I hear my pastor preach, his preaching clarifies all those doubts, and my faith gets more stronger. And because, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's, and it's, we've got to be clear on this. Church is only safe and God is only safe through the blood of Jesus Christ. Apart from that blood, God is dangerous and church is dangerous. Church is extremely dangerous. It's a dangerous place to step into communion with God and, uh, if I'm not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But in Christ, it's the safest place I could possibly be. So, yeah, very important. We, and this is a beautiful thing when we think about his passive obedience and his active obedience. Um, but they're blended together, and I want to make that very clear. They're blended together. You can't have one without the other. Um, I quoted John Owen this morning. A couple people asked me for that quote, so I'm going to try to put it in the bullets next week. But Owen was really good on uh, uh, passive and active obedience. 
And he, and he went so far as to say, it's all active obedience. You know, you can't, there's not a time when he's, um, he's obedient in his suffering, but not also actively obeying. They're, they're joined together. Um, but they are, they are accomplishing two different things. This is the removal of our sin. This is the credit of his righteousness to our account. Okay, let's move on. Um, did you notice anything in this answer that kind of made you raise an eyebrow? In question 37. You're all Calvinists, and you read this, and you went, wait a minute. Let me read it again. That during, yeah, I heard somebody say it. That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the elect. It says against the sin of the whole human race. Now, um, how many of you noticed that? Nobody noticed it? Well, never mind, then I'll just move on. Okay, no, 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 no. You're going to sleep while I read it, then uh, no. Okay, I'll tell you what it means. What does it mean? Um, Because don't we believe in the doctrine of uh, limited atonement? Okay, that was really encouraging. (laughs) Man, you guys are a whole bunch of Arminians. That's the problem. (laughs) All right, let's go back to basics. So, so remember, remember the tulip, and uh, remember the, uh, you know, when we talk about the atonement of Christ, um, we, uh, we, we talk about, like, in the, in the canons of Dort, for example, which they come along a little bit later. Heidelberg is written in 1563, canons of Dort written uh, 1618, 1619, and there, the Reformed churches tighten up their language on the atonement because of a guy named Jacob Arminius. Arminius comes in the late 16th century, and uh, he was a Reformed pastor, <clears throat> also a Reformed professor. He didn't want to use the Heidelberg Catechism in church, and uh, he came up with these ideas that, well, maybe election is conditional based on God seeing in the future who would place their faith in him. Maybe our hearts aren't totally depraved. Maybe, you know, there's part of us that's still able to choose God. Um, And he said atonement is, Christ's atonement is the same for everybody. It is uh, a hypothetical universalism. Everybody in the world could be saved if they wanted to, and uh, the atonement is, is not for anyone in particular, but for everyone in general. He began teaching these things, okay, this is post-Heidelberg Catechism, and that's when the, um, the, you know, the Reformed Assemblies, uh, in the, the Senate, ultimately uh, come into the Senate of Dort in 1618-1619 to discuss those points, and they say, no, this is, that is not what we mean. <clears throat> it actually comes from Jacob Arminius' followers. Jacob Arminius dies in 1609, and his followers, called the Remonstrants, um, they produce a document in 1610, the next year, and it has five points. They are the original five-pointers, by the way. Arminians are the original five-pointers. And the, uh, the Reformed Church has simply responded to those uh, five points of the Remonstrants, Arminius' followers. But on that issue of atonement... Um, they simply clarified what had always been understood by the Reformed, and including here. Um, if you remember, it was Zacharias or Sinus who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism, 
great reformed theologian in Germany, uh, teaching at the University of Heidelberg. And uh, his writings are wonderful, especially his larger catechism. That's one of my favorites on covenant theology. And he wrote a, a, a large commentary on the, cate- on the Heidelberg Catechism. They, they are actually lectures that he gave in the university on the Catechism. And when he lectured on this uh, question, on question 37, if you have the Ursinus' uh, Catechism, it's still in print today, there's an English translation. It's a little bit old, so um, some of the words aren't great. But, but there he says uh, very clearly that uh, Christ, what he's drawing attention to is Christ's passive obedience. And again, he's living in a world where God's anger is expressed, yes, against the whole human race. I mean, the fact that we all live in a cursed world and we all die is uh, uh, an example that we live in a world that is cursed because of God's anger against the whole human race. Uh, He says that the, Ursina says that the, the suffering of Jesus Christ upon the cross his death was sufficient to pay for the sins of all people. He even went so far as, I think the Canons of Dort say it was sufficient to pay for worlds of people. But it's only efficient for those who put their trust in him. And who are those who put their trust in him? The elect. The elect will. All that the Father has given me will come to me. But the way that the Bible presents that, of course, you know, the doctrine of election is always presented as a, a pastoral doctrine to comfort us, to know that um, you are loved by the Father. You've been loved by the Father from eternity past. Uh, but when the gospel is proclaimed, when, when the gospel is presented, it's always presented in terms of the whole world, are, are, we're all sinners, the whole world is full of sin, Christ is the only solution, Christ died for sinners. Um, the gospel is never proclaimed by the apostles, um, you know, well, if you're elect, you can put your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, that would be ridiculous. It's, uh, but it, it is the elect who ultimately do that. But what, so what Ursinus says is that, yes, Christ comes into this world and he suffers in a world that is subject to God's wrath against the whole human race. And then when he goes to the cross, his death is sufficient for uh, the whole human race. But it's, of course, only efficient. So he clarifies what he means. It's only efficient uh, for those who put their trust in him, who are, of course, the elect. And we don't know who the elect are. We don't know. You know your, your neighbor, who you are quite sure he's reprobate, could be elect. Maybe someone even said that of you uh, one time. Um, that person definitely is not saved. We, we never want to, you know, I always say, sit in the airport and play guess the reprobate. Um, you can't do that. You know, uh, if, you saw, if you saw Saul of Tarsus, you would definitely think, instrument of Satan, this guy is the worst. And um, he was bad, and God used him as the greatest apostle. And so we simply do not know. We preach the, the gospel indiscriminately to the whole world and say that all the world are sinners and Christ is the one who paid for sinners. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29. 
Put your trust in him. There's no other way out. Any questions on that? He is, his birth, life, death, and resurrection is enough for all, this, all the worlds. I understand mm -hmm. that. For everybody. We don't know who is elected and who is not. However, when I knew I was a child of God, but I felt myself too of a sinner, Jesus Christ, when he died, he died for all of my sins. Yeah. So now I'm a member of my church. They, the, 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 the sacrifice was sufficient enough for me. Yes. My granddaughter, she's going to be, she's going to grow up. We don't know what is going to happen to her. Right. The sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ is enough for her. Yes, it's sufficient for her. Sufficient. And it will be efficient when God does that mysterious thing right. and brings right. her to his feet. That's correct. So it's sufficient for her. It's sufficient for all. But it's only efficient for those, yeah, who put their trust in him. Because we're justified by faith alone. And faith is given. Faith is given. Faith is a gift. And it's given to the elect. Right. A zero? You got the best words today. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Right. You realized what he is. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it, Yolanda. I mean, essentially, we have to have, uh, we have, to have the scales fall from our eyes. You know, we have to see our sin. This is like when we pray, when I pray, I'm on my knees each morning and pray for people close to me whom I want to see saved. I beg God, I beg Him to open their eyes to the fact that they are a sinner and that, yeah, the only salvation possible. The only salvation sufficient is Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, uh, but apart from Jesus Christ, you know, and the election and all that, that is God's business. We, you know, we, that is not our business. You know, the only reason it's revealed to us, again, is it's revealed in the Word of God to comfort the child of God and give him assurance. But all that election business is God's business. Our business is to proclaim the gospel and say that there is no other atonement that is sufficient. Now, it's true that, I mean, you know, if, if Ursinus wrote his catechism in, you know, 1663 instead of 1563, he probably would have used the language a little differently because of the controversy that happened with Ursinus. And this is just this is what we call historical theology. Like I was saying before, when you read Augustine, you're like, oh, I don't know. He, he sounds like Luther in some places, and in other places, he doesn't sound like Luther at all. He sounds kind of Catholic. Well, right, because he, he's, he's a man of his time, and not all of the controversies that Luther faced are, are um, Augustine's facing. Just like the controversies that we're facing today are always the same exact controversies that people in the past did. We have to, we have to uh, know a little bit of history 
and read theology in a historical fashion and see its development. But what the confessions do give us, no pun intended, is sufficient uh, for, uh, for all that we need to know about God. So, yeah, John. So, going back to the act of if the meritorious side of it didn't happen, then we're in trouble. Right. You would have the slate clean from your sin, but you still haven't produced any righteousness to stand before God. Okay, if that's the case, and that side of it, we're in trouble. But then, how do you explain to people, okay, Christ's payment was sufficient, what would be the problem with saying, okay, he took the sins away from the whole world, but because he didn't meritoriously uh, act in act of obedience for them, mm-hmm. then the non-elect are in whatever. Right. How do you, how do you explain that? Uh, because of the doctrine of hell. If that's true, what you just said, then there would be no hell. But the Bible tells us there's hell and there's people that will be paying for their sins. Yeah. And that's where, the, that's where our doctrine of atonement comes into full review. And Aristinus believed these things. The guy who wrote, you know, question 37, he believed these things. So, so in other words, you know, um, our sin has to be dealt with. It was either paid for at the cross, specifically, or it will be paid for in hell. You can't separate it. You cannot separate it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've heard a lot of Reformed people, they, they, they kind of want to parse it out too much, and it's not helpful. It's, it's, it's together. I mean, we get our sins forgiven, and we get the righteousness of Jesus Christ because he was both uh, passive and, and active in, in obedience. Yeah, Connie. Um, what I'm thinking about is his death was sufficient for us all, but if we don't recognize ourselves as a sinner, then we can't um, repent. Right. It's not effective. Right. Right. So, That's what I'm saying by the faith. Yeah. So exactly. we have to, you know, even though everyone is covered, only those people who recognize that they are in sin and will benefit from the covering. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and those who do not repent and believe will not be covered by the atonement of Christ in the end. Yeah. Right, right. That's why, um, if you notice the way the apostles speak, they never say, um, Jesus died for you. They never say, go, go read all their sermons and acts. Look at how they preach. We've developed these things, you know, kind of from Billy Graham. And, uh, and I'm not, you know, putting down Billy Graham. I think Billy Graham's done some great things. But he's also done some things that were unbiblical, you know. The buses will wait for you, you know, kind of, kind of pressuring people to make a decision. The, the apostles never did that. And they never said, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you. Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, no, they said that we're under the wrath of God. And unless you, we repent and believe, um, you know, we, we are hopeless. And, uh, but, the, but, but if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You and all your household. We never hear Billy say that. 
And uh, his wife did, though. Ruth was a Presbyterian. A lot of people don't know that. That shows the sovereignty of God right there. So, so. All right, we've got five minutes. So I want to move on real quick. Um, how did he suffer? Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Now, this is really amazing. So the answer, the answer is so that he, though innocent, might be condemned by a civil judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. In other words, um, he bore our curse. But one thing I want to... Um, uh, highlight here real quick that I think is really encouraging for us is the fact that Pontius Pilate's name is in the creed. I just want us to meditate on this just for two minutes. Who the heck is Pontius Pilate? He, he was a, a Roman governor of Palestine, lived once upon a time. He was not, uh, certainly wasn't the, the emperor, um, being governor of Palestine was not a prestigious job. I uh, remember the Roman Empire starts in Rome and then it goes outward, right? And they took over a huge part of the world and everywhere they would go, they would conquer, then they would put their troops in there and they would build roads going out. All roads lead to Rome. Bridges, aqueducts, things like that. That's why there's Roman ruins all over Europe. Um, and then they would put their rulers over there, their governors, they would, they would also allow the local people to worship the way they wanted to. The Romans were very sophisticated. Roman history is fascinating. They would even allow puppet kings, you know, in the local places. So, they, you know, keep the people happy. Keep them happy. You took away capital punishment, you're not going to kill anybody. We're going to kill people. And that's why they did crucifixions. They would put the crosses out in the outskirts of the towns. And Rome was very orderly. It was, I would have made a good Roman, I think. Uh, it, it was very orderly. And uh, you knew when you were coming into town, you'd see people dying on these crosses. Uh, it was a horrible thing to see. It was sobering, too. You knew that uh, Rome is in control, and you don't want to mess up in this town. Uh, you might end up on one of those crosses. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified, but all non-Roman citizens could. So that's the world that Jesus grows up in. And uh, a world where there's the puppet king, Herod. He really doesn't have any power. Um, the Jews are still allowed to meet in synagogue. They're allowed to meet at the temple and have their feasts. But they all know who's really in charge. It's the Romans. And, uh, you know, the lucky bloke who got to be the governor of Palestine, you know, kind of this far outskirts place from Rome, was this guy Pontius Pilate. And his name is in the Christian creed. You know, it would be like, I mean, Governor, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, being in the Christian creed. And people are going, who was Arnold Schwarzenegger? Oh, he was just governor of California. Or, it wouldn't even be that prestigious. It'd have to be like governor of Rhode Island, you know. I don't even know who the governor of Rhode Island is. No offense to Rhode Island. Just it's a little place, right? Um, uh, so, so what does that mean for us? What's the significance for us when we, when we confess the faith? And we, why, not, why not just say he suffered, was crucified, and buried? Why do we say he was suffered under this guy who was no guy? What's that, Vincenzo? Yeah, because of history. Well, but what does that mean? What does that mean? It cements it into a time and place. 
the Christian faith is a historic faith. It is not Buddhism or you know, any kind of New Age belief that's just a, a spiritual thing you've got to tap into. It's not a set of principles that you live by. That's what most people think. Christianity is just a set of principles you live by. No, it's the, the are ev- events that happened. Events. The gospel is an event. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it didn't happen, there's no point in being a Christian. If it did happen, then everybody should be a Christian. It's one or the other. There's no in-between. There's no, oh, I'm glad that works for you. Um, a guy suffered under this, this Roman emperor or this Roman uh, governor of Palestine uh, in about the year 33 BC, uh, uh, AD. Time and place, it locates it. And that's why the gospel writer, especially Luke, physician, very careful in his first volume, the Gospel of Luke, and his second volume, Acts of the Apostles, if you read those together, you'll notice what Luke does. He's so careful. He always names names, places. We can find times based on who was the governor of where. You know, Felix, Agrippa, uh, this Herod, that Herod, uh, the census that was done under Augustus. Uh, it, everything's located in time. And uh, it's, it's a historical Religion, what I mean by that is that history matters. It's not just a set of principles that exist abstractly. And when we confess the faith suffered under Pontius Pilate, we are saying to the world, something happened 2,000 years ago. And I believe it's true. All right, we'll stop there and uh, we'll pick up next week. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these great summaries, creeds and confessions and catechisms. We pray that you would use them in our lives, Lord, to help us grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for him, for his passive and active obedience and his suffering, Lord. We thank you that it is sufficient for us and that the Holy Spirit has made it effective and efficient for us, Lord. We thank you that none of our sins stand against us and you receive us in his righteousness and that he suffered at one time in history. Oh, Lord, we look forward to seeing him. And bless us the rest of this day, Lord, as we rest, as we're refreshed, and as we continue to look forward to the new heavens and new earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.